in light of what's been happening in Ukraine with the Russian invasion about 10 days ago now, I am going to try and do a number of episodes interviewing folks, uh, mostly Ukrainians, but also Syrians, uh, maybe some Bosnians, and other folks that I know that have been offering very interesting, nuanced interpretation of what's been going on. Because obviously, in addition to the horrors of the bombings themselves, there are a lot of things happening that other people who have gone through uh, different but also similar experiences have been talking about and have been warning about for a very long time now. And the goal here is to just try and link them up in a way that I don't think is being done um, often enough. So this is not a Ukraine news update. I am neither uh, qualified nor willing to, to be that person. I will actually link in the description below a podcast that I've been listening to that have been trying to... Um, do this much better than I ever could. So mostly by Ukrainians or at least interviewing Ukrainians. Um, if the only, um, as of now on the podcast, the only episode that uh, sort of touches on what's been happening is an episode that I recorded two years ago with the analyst and writer uh, Peter Pomerantsev. And I republished this episode last week. Uh, so you can check that out if you want. So today's uh, episode is with Leila Shami. Uh, she's going to introduce herself in a bit. Uh, she's a good friend of mine, and we've been talking about what's been happening uh, separately, uh, mostly uh, like through chatting. I figured that we should do this as well and record something for everyone, but sort of hoping that maybe this episode and the episodes that will follow will be like listened to in five years, in 10 years, you know, in the distant future even and whatnot, and that we, we might sort of learn from it as well. So we're recording this on March 7th, 2022. If you want to support Ukrainian activists and civil society, I am also including links in the description below. Uh, so thank you for listening, folks, and take care. Obviously, we're going to be talking about what's been happening for the past 10 days or so now in Ukraine. And um, first, let's start with just you introducing yourself, if that's okay. And then I'll ask you to talk about some of the reactions, some of the thoughts that you've been having uh, since this, this all started. Okay, my name's Leila Shami. I'm a British Syrian um, activist. Uh, I've worked for many years with the human rights movement in Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East, and I'm co-author um, with Robin Yassin Kassab of the book Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War. So, obviously what's been happening in Ukraine, and I will say that, uh, I would have already said it in introduction, but I'll repeat it, that I'm going to try and do a number of such episodes, and the, and the goal of these episodes isn't necessarily, uh, well, it's, it's not a news podcast, you know, people can get their updates elsewhere. And I will link a number of uh, good podcasts I've been listening to for people who want to be up to date using that format. But really, the point of this is to uh, platform a certain reflection uh, coming from you in this case, because I have a feeling that these things are like we, we are on the signal group, you and I, and we've been talking about these things since it started, uh, even before when we saw the troops amassing at the border, the Russian troops amassing at the Ukrainian border. And there's all there is this sense, obviously, in this group, because this group, for those who don't know, I'm not going to name names, obviously, but it has a number of Syrians, a number of Bosnians. There's sort of that that thing going on for it. Um, we sort of we saw that there was kind of this fear of what of how things can go wrong and how things how worse things can get. And that fear obviously was informed or is still informed by 
uh, what's been happening in Syria. So can you talk a bit about that to get us started? Well, I think definitely um, the past few days, seeing what's been happening in Ukraine has been very triggering for Syrians. Um, You know, it brings back uh, a lot of what we've been through over the past decade. Um, Certainly the the images that are coming out um, of the refugees moving, of the cities which are being bombed, um, you know, it, it, it's bringing back a lot of those those flashbacks of, of the trauma that we've gone through um, over the past few years. Uh, I think what's been really amazing is to see how Syrians mm-hmm. have stood in solidarity immediately with Ukraine, and that solidarity really comes from this place of shared pain, this feeling of compassion and empathy, which is a very good starting point for solidarity. It's certainly a much better place than trying to project your own ideological fantasies mm-hmm. onto another people's struggle, which is something that we always see every time something comes up. So, yeah, it's been it's been very emotional. Um, I, I've had a break myself from social media for over six months now, mm-hmm. um, just trying to work on my mental health a bit and um, have a bit of a break from what's been an extremely draining time for us and just opening Twitter before even seeing anything I could already feel myself getting very panicky and mm-hmm. um, but yeah obviously now the focus is, is how we can stand in solidarity with with Ukraine how we can do whatever we can to ensure that it doesn't end up like another Syria and um, we have a lot of experience um, to share and to offer and we've seen that coming from Syrians in the past few days I mean I've seen a lot of um, solidarity initiatives on social media um, from within Syria. There's been graffiti mm-hmm. um, in Idlib in solidarity with Ukraine. There were protests in Jabal al-Zawiye. Um, we've also seen lots of Syrians writing articles standing in solidarity and, and also sharing very useful practical tips about how to deal with airstrikes, how to protect yourself in cases of conflict, how to build solidarity, how to document war crimes, you know, really useful practical suggestions. So uh, people are really reaching out to Ukrainians and, and trying to offer practical support as well. Yeah, I've been in touch with this um, Ukrainian woman who was is going to come to Switzerland for some time. Um, and she said, we obviously got to talk and stuff, and I mentioned Syria. And she said, like, for the first time, uh, she's starting to really understand what Syrians went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that before, even for her, like, even as someone who, who um, she was in Ukraine until recently, like, basically has Russia as their neighbor all the time the war in Syria was always this abstract, distant thing. Like, she, she didn't know it was a bad thing and she didn't support it. And, you know, it's not a popular war by, by those standards in Ukraine. But, you know, there's the, there's the element of distance, there's the element of it's a foreign country, not the same language, that sort of thing. Which is something we've also been seeing in contrast to how Ukrainians have been reacting to the, the Russian invasion. Uh, there, there are a number of different factors uh, from the Syrian one uh proximity means obviously shared history means uh and obviously the invasion of crimea eight years ago something now means that many ukrainians at least mentally have been prepared for it or at least preparing for it uh it did still take from everything that i've been seeing of ukrainians posting especially on twitter it still took most people by surprise but um that element of surprise uh in many ways, they they quickly got over it, if if that makes sense. So like they 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 were man they managed to get to be on the move, 
really extraordinarily fast. Uh, I don't think we've seen something like this. Uh, it, it seems to be a combo of um, social media, uh, it happening eight years after the initial invasion, so again, that element of preparation. And uh, the way I cope with these things, uh, and obviously you and I talk about this separately, is trying and, you know, put this analytical hat on and trying to rationalize it or intellectualize it or whatnot, which, you know, sometimes works, often does not. Um, and in this specific case, I couldn't help but think of like, well, what could we have done differently in Syria? And this is a purely, you know, purely intellectual exercise uh, because... It, I, the, the rational answer is well, probably not much because it was so difficult, and there is no way of there is no way of fighting against Russia in the sky because Syrians, unlike what Ukrainians are getting now, which is good, did not get this kind of of military support in that sense. So yeah, what what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly uh, going back to what you said about an element of bitterness, um, I mean, it does show what can be done to support a struggle when there's the political will there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in the response to the refugees, for example, um, Ukrainians have been welcomed with open arms by countries which have been extremely hostile um, to refugees coming from the Middle East. We've seen such wide-ranging sanctions uh, placed on Russia uh, immediately and a big consensus for that from European states and also the shipment um, of arms. I mean, the, the manpads that have gone into Ukraine and are already taking down Russian aircraft as Syrians were begging uh, for, for manpads for years and, and didn't receive them. Um, their, their surface-to-air missiles for mm -hmm. people who don't know. Um, so, yeah, certainly when the political will exists, you know, we see that there can be much more strength and pressure put on the state. The other thing that's happened is, um, you know, immediate discussion about referral to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court to hold Russia accountable. And we didn't see these things immediately in Syria. Um, but also, you know, I mean, the reason Syrians are standing with Ukrainians is because they understand the pain that they're going through. They understand the trauma um, that Ukrainians are going through. But I think people also hope that there will be a bit of reflection um, from some people who didn't stand in solidarity with Syria of what actually happened in Syria and what could have been done. Uh, because it's certainly the case that appeasement of Russia um, has directly emboldened Putin to believe that he can carry out these kind of uh, invasions uh, uh, with impunity. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully there will be some reflection on that there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We've seen a lot of different people's uh see similarities in their circles. I just read this nice sign at one of the protests. Um it's something along the lines of like from Palestine to Ukraine occupiers have no claim. And I I, I it's always such a tricky thing. You don't wanna you don't wanna take up oxygen. You don't wanna say what well, this is about me. You don't wanna do these things. It just there are parallels and the parallels are there. Obviously the we've seen on social media the past ten days or so the difference like you know non-ukrainian refugees who are stuck in ukraine and the difficulties that they've been going through um we've seen all of these things and it's it's difficult to to pace oneself i guess is how i would frame it uh because sometimes yes this is a problem 
but also there is this other problem that requires urgent uh, urgent attention in this case obviously the bombings mm-hmm. and it's i'm not i'm not kind of judging anyone or anything because i don't think there is a perfect way of balancing these things out um that being said specifically when it comes to syria more so than other contexts because of russia's involvement there and intervention there we tend to forget i mean we don't but a lot of people tend to forget that it took like what four entire years into the the after the uprising for russia to intervene 2015 if i remember correctly um and in those four years a lot of different things could have done like even those who argue that well by the time russia sent its air force uh then then it would be a different calculation even people who argue that there have there were four entire years of different things that could have done before then and i the bitterness on my side i'm not syrian uh, but i have some bitterness when it comes to the the shame not the shame the the how how would i say this when when there were a lot of syrians calling for some kind of of aid uh especially military aid especially or at least something concrete to be done let's put it that way mm-hmm. a lot of them were shamed online and were sort of silenced and you know called all sorts of, of names like uh, you're an imperialist you're a you know whatever um using a very odd combo of either the war on terror language like you know you're supporting terrorists or uh as i said the whole um, imperialism thing like you cia agents basically you know that sort of thing and we are seeing an element of this being reproduced in ukraine by basically calling all ukrainians nazis because of the Azov battalion in ukraine um which is very the 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 way i frame this is that it's kind of ironic given russia's uh being arguably the main promoter of far-right ideology today in the world um and you know i have we have the receipts for it and i can put some of them in the description but i've been retweeting them if people listening want to just check those out so i guess what i'm trying to say is that there is i forgot who said this but someone someone posted like you know they already hated twitter and they hate war but they were not ready for war twitter essentially and it is it is something is happening there that i feel we're not maybe we're not properly equipped to to probably reflect on it because we're very much still in the middle of it so part of why i'm recording this with you is also because i'm i'm curious it's like if 10 years someone is re-listening to this uh how much would have changed by then and uh this being seen as the beginning of something maybe or end of something who knows like basically a transition phase but the the intervention in Syria happened after the intervention in Ukraine, a year after, if I, if I have my timeline correct. And what's been happening at the time, what was happening at the time, very few people actively tried to link them up. I had Peter Pomerantsev on two years ago on, on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and I reshared this in light of what's been happening. And he said something along those lines, that there's been a lot of missed opportunities between Ukrainians and Syrians. And I was wondering if we can dissect that a bit. Like, why do you think that is? Is it just the element of foreignness? Like, there are two different peoples with no immediate connection or something like that? Possibly. Um, I think that's uh, one part of it. I mean, also, I, I think for Syrians, they, they've been so much involved in um, 
with their own struggle and basically just a struggle for survival. Mm. I mean, reaching out to other people and other struggles is really a luxury that we Mm. have Mm. as solidarity activists based on on the outside. Mm. I don't think the onus should be on Syrians that are inside, that are are trying to struggle against the regime, Mm -hmm. trying to struggle against uh, foreign imperialisms, trying to struggle against um, all these terrorist and jihadist groups which have come into the fray. I mean, they've got their hands Mm -hmm, full. mm -hmm. Uh, It's not for them to be reaching out. We on the outside, of course, could have done um, a lot more to build solidarity. I mean, I think that something that can potentially be very positive is that all of these struggles, which have been very marginalised struggles, which are on the periphery, those people can actually join together and realise that what they're facing is shared. And I've certainly seen a lot of that over the past decade through building connections with people um, from Hong Kong, people from Bosnia, um, you know, all these different places which have, you know, not received the kind of support or attention that maybe other struggles um, have perceived. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's definitely... um, that's definitely a factor and you know maybe that will change a bit in the future maybe more of these um similarities uh, will start to be made it's an opportunity i mean for syrians our solidarity with ukraine should be to stop um what's happening in ukraine from escalating to a situation like syria but it is also an opportunity for us to draw some of those parallels and and you know show that russian appeasement in syria has led directly mm. to this and um, the tactics that russia is now using in, in ukraine were tried and tested in in syria russia tested so many kinds of weaponry in syria and um, it carried out over 200 Um, targeted bombings of hospitals, it was targeting water treatment infrastructure, targeting schools. Um, You know, these are are tried and tested uh, terror tactics by the Russian state. Um, So it is an opportunity to draw those parallels to to our struggle and um, hopefully raise some more empathy for the Syrian cause as Mm. well. Yeah, especially those, uh, we've seen them in the past couple of days. And I mean, we're recording this the day it's going to be out. So this is March 7th, 2022 recording this in the morning um we've seen in the past couple of days those supposedly those corridors or those those supposed safe zones are actually being targeted we saw one yesterday uh and this this we saw this in syria all the time uh, every time there was a uh a supposed deal between the rebels in on one on you know in one place and the Assad regime for example to allow some kind of humanitarian corridor uh, often those humanitarian corridors would be actually bombed. Uh, we saw refugee camps being bombed as well. Um, and it's difficult to conclude that they, the, such policies have any other goal other than collective punishment, uh, sort of like a psychological terrorism, you know, basically terrorizing people into submission. Because militarily, obviously, there's no aim there. Another thing is that we uh there's as of this morning i checked uh, the un's website there's over 1.7 million ukrainians who are, who are already refugees which is an extraordinary number in just 10 days yeah. uh probably going to go up uh i'm guessing and a lot of those ukrainians are going to be in places where uh, syrian refugees have sought shelter or sought some protection like notably in germany um there's going to be a lot of potentials happening there in terms of just people meeting each other in a situation where they may not have before. I'm sort of uh, reminded of uh, how 
even though I, you know, come from Lebanon and grew up in Lebanon, I, I didn't meet as many Syrians in Lebanon as I would when I left and, you know, when I was in London and, and so on. And that's just not, a, it's not even just a matter of proximity because obviously Lebanon is closer. It's more a matter of like, well, in Lebanon, you have all of those other politics happening, class and sectarianism and xenophobia and refugees, like seeing refugees being put in certain places so that they don't mix with the rest of the Lebanese, etc., etc., that you didn't have, obviously, in this, to the same extent. I mean, you don't have it in London. And that created different kinds of, of, uh, of solidarity, of even just like empathy bond uh, building, you might say, you know, different kinds of things I didn't have before. And something similar is happening, although probably still below the surface for now, between Hong Kongers who are in London, for that matter, and Syrians, because there's quite a lot of them who are now in London. And so there is always this thing is that you, you don't want it to happen this way. You don't want that it's it's trauma. You don't want trauma bonding to be the only thing that bonds you mm -hmm. together because that's very fragile, obviously, and you don't want to just be each other's potential triggers, you know, that sort of thing. But it is there, and it's something that uh, I definitely see some potential in... in and just thinking about different ways of, of interacting with one another, like, as I mentioned, the, the Ukrainian woman who's visiting, who's coming to Switzerland soon and who said that now she's, she's thinking a lot about what Syrians went through. It's going to create these, um, these parallels. Um, what I'm wondering, if we can get into it a bit more, uh, and obviously feel free to say it as much as you want, but I remember particularly 2016 as a very dark year. I remember that year yeah. as other than being hyper online and, you know, uh, live streaming uh, or seeing people live stream bombs behind them and that sort of thing. I spent a lot of sleepless nights and the, and the only comparison I could think of at the time was the 2014 Israeli war on Gaza because I, I, was, I was doing journalism back then and I was also spending a lot of time just on WhatsApp or or uh, messaging on Messenger on Facebook or whatnot with people in Gaza or whatnot, which kind of replicated itself again in 2016. But in 2016, I also remember constantly feeling that there was a campaign of gaslighting against Syrians and people who are surround, like who surround Syria, if that makes sense, uh, who are involved in Syria, I should say, of like any kind of I remember specifically there was a, a meeting I attended to. I won't, I won't mention details, and I kind of forgot the details anyway. But it was with a couple of labor uh, members, not MPs, but like some, they were involved with some MPs. And we were, and it was like November or something, and we were talking about trying to encourage uh, the UK government or whatever to have uh, like foods and medicine dropped over besieged uh, Eastern Aleppo at the time. Something very basic, uh, which do, does not count, does not require a no-fly zone, doesn't require that much um, deployment, militarily speaking. It doesn't, it's not that, it, you know, it's, it, it really wouldn't have required this much. And even if it did, it shouldn't have been an argument against it. But I mean, I'm saying it wouldn't even have required this much. And, but it was so taboo. It was so, um, uh, sorry, it was so... You were, you were sometimes literally yelled at. And we saw Syrians themselves in London actually being uh, kicked out of uh, conferences on Syria where support, like all of these things were happening. Now, luckily, it's not to the same extent on Ukraine. A number of, and there's a number of reasons for that. 
one uh, like Russia's media outlet, like the state media outlets, do not have the same kind of of luxuries that they did. They don't have the same access to to us essentially than they did uh, six years ago now. But a lot of other things are also happening, and I was wondering what you think those are. Yeah, that I mean, that was, uh, I think, very difficult is that, you know, there's an understanding um, as to why people would be opposed to Western military intervention in Syria. I mean, I also was opposed to Western military intervention in Syria. But what we saw time and time again was people blocking calls or, or criticizing us for things which were very humanitarian calls. There was no reason whatsoever why people couldn't support calls to end uh, sieges um places which were being besieged um, by the Assad regime and the Iranians from receiving humanitarian aid. There was no reason why people couldn't stand up and talk about the political prisoners and calling for their release or standing against the industrial scale torture that was going on in Syria. So, you know, there were very concrete humanitarian calls which would have made a difference to Syrians which were completely blocked and um, with Ukraine because there's an empathy coming from proximity and those calls seem to be more accepted now I I don't think it's we should criticize people too much for empathizing with people that are closer Mm -hmm. to them because certainly from my own perspective I do um, feel more emotional about Syria, Palestine, their countries that I've lived in, things which are happening in Europe, because I know the the, the context. And we do emotionally relate on an emotional mm-hmm. level to places which are closer than us. So I don't think we should criticise necessarily people for that, but we should use it as a possibility as an opening to say well actually in other places um, people are going through similar things and trying to build up more of a human response more compassion uh, for those areas yeah, it's, it's very much a, a difference between a politics of scarcity and a politics of abundance in my view like the politics of scarcity is quite literally competing for attention quite literally like if there is too much attention on ukraine that means there isn't enough on yemen or syria or, or whatever um, but a politics of abundance feels more productive, let alone, I, I just think, also more ethical. Um, is that, well, clearly, clearly it's possible to welcome refugees so quickly. Clearly it's possible and clearly it's a good thing. Therefore, it shouldn't be done. It should be also replicated with these other people, seeing refugees, Afghans, Iraqis, and so on and so forth, who we have seen treated horrifically at the Poland border, notoriously, mm-hmm. but also the Greek and Turkish one, Poland and Belarus, but also the Greek and, and Turkish one, uh, especially two years ago, I remember. Uh, so that's all of the difference. And I, I do feel this this is something that gets lost a lot on social media. But I mean, just by the nature of what we call the attention economy, there is that problem and, and it's a difficult one to resolve. I don't claim I have to, to have the answer to this. But I, I do admit I have seen a lot of um, I don't know how what I what I would describe them. And it's not just social media. Like articles I've written, people I've spoken to, uh, also focusing a bit too much on uh, like the fact that Ukrainians are being welcomed, as if like this is the problem. And they wouldn't say that this is the problem because I I know I know where their heart is. I know I know that's not what they mean. But 
it's still something that you're doing publicly. It's still something that other people can see. It's still something that can be misunderstood if the person seeing this doesn't know the context where you come from. And and a lot of other people that don't have this context, that aren't refugees, don't have a Syrian connection, don't have all of that, actually also jumping on that bandwagon and creating a lot of very hostile, um, or let's say like repeating those missed opportunities that I mentioned, uh, Peter Pomerantsev mentioned on, on the podcast a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, again, I don't have the answer to it. It's really much something that I'm just seeing a lot. I'm seeing a lot of Ukrainians who um, who had kind of, followed a number of Syrians that I knew beforehand around 2014-2015 when Russia intervened in both Ukraine and then in Syria. Uh, but kind of it's almost like this this potential um, solidarity building or whatnot was sort of frozen for some time and now it's there is the potential for it to come back again. And I guess the difficulty is like how do you do this without uh, this being exclusively trauma bonding like how 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 does one do this mm-hmm. so okay this op- opportunity in quotation i don't it's not really the, the good word either but this is happening there will be a lot of ukrainians in the same cities with a lot of syrians in ways that we've never seen before what can that do right like wh- what are certain things that you feel could be done moving forward maybe on the local level first but even like on a global level i don't know because with the internet these things can be blurred these days I think we need to be very careful how we do it, because I've seen a lot on social media of people saying, yeah, but what about Palestine? What about Syria? But in a way that's kind of detracting from what's happening in Ukraine, that people should only be thinking about us. And I I feel uncomfortable with that, that it's good to um, show parallels in the case that you're supporting Ukraine and you're trying to build solidarity. But you need to be very careful about how you're framing uh, those kind of discussions, especially because some people are using that in a very um, negative way um, to, to try to build support for their struggle in a way that detracts from what's happening in Ukraine. Also, going back to what you were saying about the refugees being welcomed, I think we need to be very careful about how we frame that because um, certainly Ukrainian refugees are being welcomed at this time Mm -hmm. into Europe. Whether that stays long term, I have a a lot of doubts about because certainly in Britain, there's going to be a lot of groups which are going to be hostile long term to a great influx of people from Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. So we need to um, guard against... guard against that framing um but in terms of uh, of solidarity i mean building those connections and trying to learn from each other's experience trying to see how there's possibility for joint actions going forward i mean for example with the call for the ICC uh, for Russia, are there opportunities to hold Russian pilots to account also for what they were doing in Syria? I don't know how that works or whether that's possible, but we saw just a couple of days ago um, there was a Russian pilot captured in Ukraine who had been decorated by Assad or had his photo taken by us with Assad um, because of his bombing raids on Syrian communities. And certainly Syrians were celebrating that and felt that there was like a bit of retribution or a bit of payback for what was happening in Syria um, being held out. So, you know, there are definitely opportunities there that, that need exploring. Yeah. And you said something that makes me think of why why I think those of us in, in that group that I mentioned have been 
sort of not just worried about what's happening now, but what could happen next. And there's a lot we mentioned that, well, obviously, Russia's mobbings can get worse. Like That's an obvious way it can get, it can get worse. But also, uh, Ukrainians are now being treated relatively well, it's true, in, in Eastern Europe and, and in Western Europe as well. Or, But it's almost like we forgot that the Brexit campaign was partly about uh, Poles and Romanians and, you know, all of that stuff that we, we were seeing. Like, the xenophobia did not stop at... Uh, brown people and black people there is a very complicated way in which what sometimes is perceived as whiteness in in the context of eastern europeans is not as um rigid let's say as uh, in the context of western europeans or white or whatever and a lot of people seem to miss that a lot of people seem to uh maybe it's a misunderstanding maybe it's a you know ignorance maybe whatever but we shouldn't forget that I'm also in Western Europe, in Switzerland. Stereotypes and representation and portrayals of Eastern Europeans in everything, really, uh, media, politics, whatever, is very rarely a good thing. It's very rarely positive. It's almost always negative, almost always, uh, yeah, almost always toxic and negative. And who knows when eventually... Like, how long will it take before Ukrainians are accused of stealing our jobs and, you know, that sort of thing? And, I mean, we're already seeing elements of this, even in the UK, as you mentioned. Uh, I don't have the latest number, but yesterday some ridiculously low number of Ukrainians were accepted, like 50, 50 or something. Yeah, and that's probably not as many as Russian oligarchs who are alone, you know. Like, there are, there are different kind of calculations that will be taken that maybe now aren't being openly boasted about because there's so much global uh, sympathy with with what Ukrainians are going through that those other actors maybe are kind of waiting, you know, uh, pacing themselves or whatnot that I, I have no reason to believe that they as soon as there is the opportunity that they want to use a number of different either bureaucratic means or legal means or whatnot to to uh, either force Ukrainians to go back, for example. I mean, Denmark is still officially, as far as my last update, uh, considers Damascus to be a, a safe place for Syrians to go back, for example. And this goes against anything that obviously any Syrian knows, anything that the international human rights organizations have been saying. Everyone who knows anything knows that that's bullshit. But they're doing it anyway. And Maybe maybe it would take longer for for that to be for them to be to do something like this for Ukrainians. Maybe Ukrainians get lucky. I don't know, but to to not have that in mind as a potential risk, I think is 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 not um, is not good politics. Like it, it's pretty reckless. Um, Definitely. I mean, we saw already the in the British House of Commons the MP for Lincolnshire was talking out the other day mm. just saying Lincolnshire's full we can't take more refugees I think we also need to bear in mind that this was very much part of uh, Putin's strategy yeah. for destabilizing Europe mm. was to create a massive refugee crisis which it did in Syria and now it's doing in Ukraine and simultaneously funding uh, far-right groups and groups with very strong anti-immigration politics um, to to provide a backlash. So it's it, I think it's very calculated on, on on Russia's part that this is you know part of the war again against Europe per se. Yeah, and this is actually a good point because this is this might be something very concrete that we can do, and we I mean people listening, everyone in general. But 
we we saw for example in the past 10 days the the question of dependence on russian gas for example has become more of a political thing to talk about whereas before it was just not talked about and it just so happens that it's it's something to be done that's good politics as in you shouldn't it's not a good thing it's not smart to be dependent on a country that is run by vladimir putin and at the same time it's something we should be transitioning out of anyway because of the climate crisis and so it just happens that i've seen some climate activists and campaigners make that link because at the end of the day you need you need to uh you need to meet the audience where they're at sometimes or the potential audience when they're at with when it comes to the syrian um what Syrian, what the Syrian story, if I can put it this way, can offer, it reminds me, like Yassin Harsal calls, like the Syrianization of the world or Syrianization of world politics. Um, Yassin is, is a Syrian writer and activist, for those who don't know. Um, and it's sort of what I'm, I'm uh, thinking about now. We, we, saw, we saw even Erdogan, not just Putin, but even Erdogan use the quote-unquote refugee card against the eu the problem the question is like why does it keep on working why is it so easy to to manipulate the eu to pressure the eu to scare away the eu with the threat of black and brown people at your shows you know that sort of thing why is it that easy and i do wonder whether it can get to a point that in the same way as we saw a convergence between climate activist goals let's say and people who may not care really about the environment, but see this other this other problem, which is dependence on on Russian gas and, and oil. Uh, well, somehow having a, a a goal in common now, and what what can that do? And obviously, what the risks of that as well. I don't want I don't want to minimize. Uh, like I mean, it would be a messy situation. There would be a way of there would we would have to find a way of navigating that in a um, smart way that doesn't have unintended consequences and that sort of thing. But I, I want, like, I wrote this article uh, in March 2020 or something for bylines called, like, it's, I forgot the title, but Europe has to choose between the European Union and Fortress Europe. And what I mean by that is that right now, and many M- European MEPs keep on saying this, mostly uh, people on the right, but also some people on the left, that, like, in order to make sure there are no borders within Europe, we must make sure that we have very stronger, uh, very, sorry, that we we have very strong borders uh, at Europe's borders outside of Europe, and we've seen this policy in practice. We've seen Ursula von der Leyen calling the Greek coast guards drowning refugees the shield of Europe, you know that sort of thing, and this is among other than being horrific thing to do in and of itself. It has given an easy card for a person like Erdogan at the time, or especially like Vladimir Putin now. Oh, I mean, we saw Lukashenko, obviously, right? Like with, with the, Pel- the Belarus-Poland uh, quote-unquote crisis at the time. Why does it work so well, essentially, is the mm-hmm. question that I think people like us and others can 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 help answer. Because mm-hmm. if if people don't want to think about us, and I'm putting us very broadly here, I think that that doesn't mean that it's going to go away. It's that thing that I keep on repeating. Like it's the whole James Baldwin thing of the oppressed know the oppressors more than the oppressors know themselves. And well, in this case, I don't see myself particularly as oppressed, but there are people who will be in those kinds of situations where they are very, very vulnerable. And the way they're treated 
we still we most people still think to believe that well it's localized there it's a localized problem mm-hmm. in on the balkan route or on the poland belarus border or on the greek turkish border or obviously in in northern africa libya and italy and so on but these things have a way of spreading out these things have a way of like if this becomes the norm there quite often it becomes the no- the norm a bit elsewhere and it, it's this part of the Syrian story that I feel very worried about when I think of 1.7 million Ukrainian refugees, the number is probably going to go up, uh, coming to Eastern Europe and, and to other parts of Eastern Europe, I should say, and, and to Western Europe, for example, or even beyond, I don't know. But this is something that I, I tend to, that I am, I am worried about in a way that I feel can be useful. Like we can actually do mm-hmm. something about it. It can actually affect people's lives in a very concrete way in a way that me saying that Putin should stop bombing may not uh, affect the situation in the same way, if you see what I mean. Well, providing support for refugees, whether that's practical support in terms of providing them with humanitarian supplies or advocating for open borders is something very concrete and very tangible that we in the West can do and is very important to do. But I think we need to be very careful that that doesn't become a substitute mm-hmm. for calling um, for stopping the reasons why people are fleeing their homes in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the, the most important call that we can be making now is to really to stop Russian bombing, to ensure protection of civilians, to ensure that people can stay in their homes mm-hmm. and, and don't have to leave. Um, and we saw that a lot in Syria. People who had no sympathy at all for what was happening in Syria were big voices um, for supporting refugees and and you know i've said before solidarity doesn't just start at our borders it has to really address the reasons why people are fleeing uh, conflict or persecution in the first place yeah it's the whole um like well we're, we're we're willing to welcome syrian refugees because well that's good politics to have but we're not willing to engage on why they became refugees in the first place and I think this also translated into a lot of misinformation and outright disinformation and propaganda on why they were fleeing in the first place. We saw a lot of people because it fits the story, right? Like if you want to convince yourself, if you're a British person that, OK, I want to be in solidarity with Syrian refugees and you have a certain political tendency, let's say, it's much easier to then tell yourself that we are the reason why they became refugees in the first place. Uh, you know, it's Western bombs in Syria that created the refugee crisis in the first place. And that takes a lot of oxygen um, in the room from what Syrians themselves are saying as to why they have been fleeing uh, Syria. Namely, overwhelming majority of, say, of them say because of the Assad regime or if in their, they're in you know, part of northern Syria, the Turkish government or regime or whatever. You know, there will be specific reasons that are not as as straightforward as well as it's always us we are always the bad people like this this whole self-flagellating thing that happens that ends up being very narcissistic i think um which we see all the time and you know whereas in some in some contexts like the palestinian one it it's easier to channel that into uh putting pressure on the israeli government because absolutely the west in this case is much more directly uh, complicit in what's happening, whether it's the Americans or the Germans or whatnot, in what in what the in what or the Brits for that matter, or in, in what the Israeli government has been doing for a long time now, it's very different when it comes to other contexts. In this case, specifically, what we're talking about Syria and Ukraine. 
um, not that the West has zero role, obviously that's not what we're saying, but it's it's ridiculous to ignore the over, the the overwhelming that the overwhelming majority of violence in Syria has been uh, what was coming from the skies, uh, the Russian and the and the Syrian Air Force. In fact, those who do want to focus on the Western one somehow don't focus on the bombings of Raqqa, for example. You know, there there mm. there's something very specific that happens in how. I've seen these um, selective outrage, let's put it that way, um, play out. Is that almost always, all of the examples I can think of actually, always serve the purpose of just distracting from the situation, making things more blurry rather than clearer. And yes, unfortunately, I have to say that it did coincide. And sometimes there was a direct link. Sometimes it's not a direct link as in, in the sense that sometimes uh, you did have direct uh, Russian government funding in those disinformation outlets, and sometimes it's it was not a direct Russian uh, disinformation. It was just people actually willingly repeat what the what what the Russian state has been doing, of like essentially becoming complicit in in a war, being part of an online army willingly or unwillingly, that whose entire purpose was to legitimize uh, bombing campaigns in Syria and. As I said, as of now in Ukraine, we're seeing less of it. Like luckily, for one, the Russian state outlets do not have the same kind of access uh, on the average Westerner than they did uh, a few years. I mean, a few months ago, even a few weeks ago, for that matter. So that that is something, and obviously, it's very interesting to see that the reach isn't is no longer the same now that you don't have this huge online powerhouse. But we're still seeing it. We're still seeing some personalities on the British left, some personalities on the American left, especially, but also on other parts of Europe, repeat these things. Now, yeah. I mean, this this is why the, the large sections of the Western left are just becoming so irrelevant now mm. to respond to things which are happening in the world because of this narcissistic desire to see everything um, through the lens of, of what their own states are doing and that everything is related to Western involvement. And as we saw in Syria, that there were large sections of the Western left that believed what was happening in Syria was directly related um, to the US, where the US played such a, a small role in what was happening. The main imperialisms in Syria were Russia and Iran, uh, Russia's bombing campaigns in support of the dictatorship there and Iran's um, ground troops, which are effectively now occupying large sections of the of the country. Mm-hmm. And in Russia, in, in Ukraine, we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of people wanting to argue that it's NATO expansionism, which is directly responsible. So it's denying the fact that people um, in other countries both can be responsible for widespread oppression and killing, and also can act as a site of resistance to that repression. Um, so, you know, uh, the analysis is not able to stand up to the reality of what's happening. And until it does, you know, we're not going to be able to really respond um, to conflict, respond to holding people accountable or, you know, make any kind of, um, imp- you know, any kind of impact at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I guess this, we have, so another thing that I will probably have a, a, a Bosnian uh, writer and activist on at some point to have that different perspective as well. But we we have seen this older story than, than what we're talking about now, older by at least a couple of decades, obviously referring to the Bosnian one. 
And having all of those parallels and it's, it's almost like it becomes on an emotional level how someone reacts other than, you know, seeing the, the bombed out uh, ruins of Kharkiv, for example, now and thinking of either Aleppo or Sarajevo, for example, and having those different images in one's mind. It's why people in Sarajevo had um, memorials and solidarity marches with Aleppo at the time in 2016 in a way that we didn't really see to the same extent um in 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 western cities there is a sort of it's a different form of memory in many ways that is very difficult to know how to um approach it other than to keep on repeating that when a story is depoliticized when the agency of the people who are being oppressed at this particular moment is being stripped away what we end up having is this very decontextualized abstract um you know almost like quite literally people have maps on their minds it's like they're playing risk where you have different types of powers fighting one another and you decide to stand with one against the other it's it's a lot of things happening at the same time and maybe this is a bit um too abstract on my side as well but it's that it's that thing of like syrian refugees being welcomed as refugees rather than as syrians specifically like being welcomed as a category that is abstract that can be, um, you know, you can mix that in with other nationalities. There's no problem with that. But it's it's the fact that you are refugees now that matters. And that usually what comes with it is a depoliticization of why you became a refugee in the first place. As if it's just a, as if it's just some, some kind of like act of God or like a tragedy, a natural tragedy or whatnot. Mm. And I do worry of that happening in Ukraine or with Ukrainian uh, refugees, especially, honestly, at, at the rate things are going, probably in the near future. I was going to say maybe in the coming months or years. I don't even know if we're, if it's going to take that long at this point. Other than the number of refugees happens so much faster than this year in case. So like things are just on a different scale in many ways. Uh, probably, I mean, among other things, because the Russian invasion is a full scale invasion on land as well in a different way than you had in Syria, which was mostly from the skies. I mean, how we respond to, to refugees is something that needs to be sorted out fairly soon because we're going to start seeing um, mass waves of migration due to climate change. Yeah. And if the response, uh, you know, Britain's taken in 50 Ukrainian refugees, uh, very limited numbers of Syrians, how, how are we going to respond um, in the future? Yeah, this is, this is the thing. And this goes back to the early warning signs that aren't even that early at this point. Like we're, we're really talking about something that's ongoing and it's just probably going to accelerate. And it, it does go back to this whole thing. Like even if someone listening to this doesn't have the same interest that we are, or doesn't have the same kind of... What I'm trying to say is that there are different ways of building empathy as well that may not come from usual... Um, like when it comes to Syria, I know a lot of people who may not know much about Syria, but ha have found ways of understanding or trying to understand what's been going on, whether we're talking about the past, whether we're talking about the like since the revolution itself, but also like refugees among them trying to understand their experiences and so on. There are ways of doing so that's very basic hum on a hum very basic human level that can then be turned also into something that's more, let's say, politically active or politically relevant. And that's sort of what my where I feel like this, these sorts of conversations can come into place. I very much, I'm, gonna, I'm going to send this conversation to 
uh, number of Ukrainian friends that I know, a number of even Bosnians I know. I want to have this sort of um, just back, back and forth of like, do you see parallels in what we just said with what you're going through? Or do you see even some differences maybe? What are some of your concerns as to what might happen soon? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a real opportunity, though, um, for, for people to speak and learn from Ukrainian refugees, because I know there were a number uh, of instances of, of people in that I know in Europe who weren't very sympathetic to what was happening in Syria and didn't support the revolution, but did get involved um, with the refugee response. And that massively turned uh, that changed their mind mm. about what was happening in Syria and they started really understanding the context why people were fleeing and started to engage much more in solidarity for people struggling in Syria. So one of the most important things in terms of solidarity is to ensure that you're raising Ukrainian voices, that you're speaking to and learning from Ukrainians as to what the situation is in Ukraine today and what Ukrainians themselves see as effective solutions. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I think that's more or less everything I wanted to say on this uh, for now. As I said, these will be uh, shorter than the others in that I think this is roughly 15 minutes. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I want to have a number of these episodes. I'm going to try and get a number of Ukrainians also to come on the podcast to talk about these things. And I will try my best to link up uh, this conversation, for that matter, with with next uh, conversations in the hope that it creates at least some kind of space where people listening can revisit it in the near future or even in a decade or whatnot and see these things. Because unfortunately, it really does not seem and maybe I can I can sort of close out on this on this point of like there are a number of other venues right now as well. And this is in addition to everything we've already said. So in addition to the fact that our priority should be uh, advocating for the end of the bombings right now. This is the top priority. Uh, equally important or, a- or after that, uh, obviously welcoming refugees and so on and so forth. But there are other venues that for now aren't being talked about in the same way as we- we've seen a lot of pressure against Russian oligarchs and their yachts and their bank account and the fact that they own so much of London and you know that sort of thing. At some point, some reckoning will have to be done with the Emirati oligarchs and the, the Saudi ones and uh, other, you know, oligarchs, what have you. And just the, the the usual way of having these exceptions and thinking that these exceptions are not going to haunt us in one way or another. I think what we saw with, with, the, with the Russian example is maybe the most blatant example of that, but I don't think it's going to stop. I don't personally think that this is necessarily where it's, it might stop. And this is something that I would try and always... Um, how do you say this? Try and always emphasize that I'm not just saying these things because I want people, I'm trying to be a better person. I want people to have more empathy, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's also important, but I'm actually saying that there are very concrete negative repercussions to to these kinds of policies, which we continue, which are still normal, which are still like very um hegemonic i should say in in the west anyway those are some of my closing thoughts and i don't know if you have any uh, closing thoughts on that and i guess we'll just leave it at there for now yeah i don't think i have anything more to add really um i mean we're just going to be following the situation and see how it unfolds and hope that you know action will be taken against russia and stop ukraine from becoming another syria and of course for syrians you know if if Russia is weakened, it has direct implications for us as well. Mm. So, um, you know, 
we're very keen to to see how this pans out and um you know a defeat of putin would certainly um renew syrians calls for for bringing down the assad regime and the assad regime would be significantly weakened so we stand in solidarity with the ukrainians both uh, because their struggle is deserving of solidarity and because you know our struggles are really joined in many ways that's a, that's an excellent point to end on well leila thanks a lot for your time thanks for having me on <laughs> Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.